This is the second segment of what we began this morning. We talked about balancing the base saturation as being uh, the most important facet, and it really is. If you're not going to take the steps to address what we talked about this morning, then um, my question would be, why are you bothering to worry about step two before you've taken step one? Uh, because really, in terms of the uh, advantages to your soil and really producing crops well, the first step is the one that I would take. If I didn't do anything else in my garden, I would make sure that I had more than 68% calcium in my base saturation. I would make sure that my magnesium level was between 17 and 20%, and I would do my best to make sure that I had 3, and five, three to 5% potassium in my in my uh, base saturation. And the reason for that is because, you know, a lot of what we're going to talk about this afternoon is just pure chemistry, but the chemistry is intended to feed our plants and the chemistry is intended to feed the microbiology. And if you have your microbiology living in a very unfavorable environment, you can put all the food there in the world and it's not going to utilize it efficiently, right? If we were thrust, you know, if we were, if we were sitting at the North Pole here and we, you know, were served the meal that we had today and we're sitting outside clothed as we are, we'd be shivering and our bodies would be under a great deal of stress and we wouldn't, you know, the food would be great, but, but we're still going to be pretty miserable, aren't we? We're not going to replicate, we're not going to uh, thrive, we're not going to do our, our jobs well, we're going to be in a miserable circumstance. And unless we address that issue of the base saturation, that's what happens in our soil with the microorganisms too, is that they are in an unfavorable environment, they do not perform the way that they need to perform, and they don't accomplish for us what needs to be accomplished. The second part that we're going to talk about this afternoon is how to calculate and amend the soil nutrient levels. We're going to look back at that soil analysis and look at those parts per millions and what that means, and that's actually the, the buffet the feeding buffet uh, for the plants. Not just the plants, but the microbes also. And then we're going to address a little bit about how we go about dealing with that issue of knowing what to feed the plants, but not knowing how to get those minerals in the ground to feed us. Because that's an important aspect of what we want to accomplish too, is uh, you know, not just to grow that biggest watermelon or that biggest tomato, but to grow the tomato that has the most nutrition in it for you and I and for our families because ultimately that's what this is all about. It's not about growing crops, it's about growing strong, healthy bodies and minds. And I believe it's very essential that we understand these things because as we look around us in society today and we see all of the challenges that society is faced with, a lot of that I think has to do with the fact that we're basically as a society here, especially in America, we've got such nutrient and chemical imbalances in our body that our frontal lobes aren't functioning well. And that's pretty obvious to me. And it should be pretty obvious to anybody that watched the last election cycle, I would think, that we're just not putting our minds where they need to be and understanding the things that we need to understand. And, you know, the, the whole purpose of... Our, our health message is to, to develop not just healthy heathen bodies, but to develop healthy bodies so that we have healthy minds, so that we have discernment in those minds to comprehend the, the, the spiritual lessons that we need to, 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 to 
you know, to, to, to accomplish the work that the Lord has set before us here. And I want to bring this to an end, don't you folks? I mean, I'm really tired of this. I'm tired of dealing with the thorns and the thistles in the garden. I'm tired of dealing with death and disease on my plants and all the destruction that is taking place around us. And I'm really tired of the way brothers and sisters across the face of this planet are treating each other these days. I want to see an end to that. And the only way that's going to happen is if my heart is prepared by the Holy Spirit, and that means that I have to be attentive and, 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 and be able to comprehend what the Holy Spirit is doing in me. And if I'm fighting physical maladies or emotional maladies or, 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 or mental illness challenges, the likelihood of that's pretty slim. So this message of dealing with the soil in its right, uh, in, in, in its right way is a step that I'm taking for my character, not just for food, not just to be a healthy heathen. So, uh, you know, I take this very seriously. I'm very passionate about this, and I love sharing this with groups because I know it works, for one thing, and I know that people are going to benefit by it. And to a person, everyone that I know that has employed what I'm sharing with you today has had good results doing it. Now, do I know everything? No. Do I have the answers to all of the questions as to how to do this the best way? Frankly, I don't know what's best. When God created the earth, he said it was good. I don't know what good is. He does. I don't. So what I'm doing is the best I can to cooperate with him, to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, so that I can learn over time what is that good thing. Because I don't think, frankly, we've even had a glimpse of it yet in our gardens. I don't think we've had a glimpse of what the Lord intended us to have at this point in Earth's history of our understanding of agriculture. I don't think we've even scratched the surface of what he would have us to understand. But yet we can still be blessed by what we can do. And as we proceed using science and his inspiration and our experience as guides, I expect that you know, a few years from now, we'll have far more understanding of our gardens. And each of you will have an experience and a way of expressing yourself through your gardens and the food that we eat that can be phenomenal. I'm, 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 I'm really anxious for that. I know how blessed I've been by studying and working in agriculture. And I know how blessed uh, the people that eat the food that we produce on our farm is because they don't know how, how, how much more nutrition is in there, but the comments that I get, both from the schools that I sell to and the, and the farmer's markets that we market to is, wow, Bob, you know, that didn't just taste really good, but I feel good. I feel good. And I don't know how many of you have had this experience, but when you eat fully nutritious food, there's a whole body experience to that. It's not just an excitement of the taste buds. There's a, a satiation that comes with that that is very unique. And I love seeing that in other people. And I want you to be able to feel that and share it also. So what we're going to cover this afternoon are some of the basic principles, again, of how to address these nutrient levels. There's a lot of controversy about this. There's a lot of different perspectives and different ideas and different publications about this. And I'll point back again to this morning what I shared with you that the winds of doctrine that are blowing through agriculture today are ferocious winds. 
And uh, what I'm going to be sharing with you is based on my personal experience and my personal understanding as an agricultural professional who's been in the industry for over 50 years. So, you know, I don't know it all, but I do I have learned some things, and what I have learned I want to share with you. And what I'm going to share with you I know works, not just because it has worked in my garden, but because it's worked all over the Western Hemisphere, wherever it's been applied. And I even have students that are uh, in, in Europe and in North Africa and in, uh, in Australia and other parts of the world, too, where these principles hold true. And that's the measure, brothers and sisters, that we need to apply when we're evaluating agricultural methods. Are the principles valid? Does it mesh with what we understand from the Bible and the spirit of prophecy and science? That is the key. And under close examination, most methods that are widely employed today and widely written about do not meet that test. So that's a, a, a caution for you, uh, but also a little bit of a disclaimer in that what I'm going to share with you is what I know works. If someone else has a different technique or a different method and they are satisfied with that, I'm not going to fight with them about it. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to wrestle with whether my method is better than his method or, 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 or you know, get into those, those kinds of discussions because, in part, it's my belief that the Lord has an individual plan for each of us. And this young man right here is going to find answers to his particular problems, perhaps in a different way, that this young man here is going to find the answers to his problems. But we're going to be led in that truth if we approach our gardens reverently and we realize that this is not just a physical but also a spiritual activity that's taking place. And that the Holy Spirit wants us to know the best way to do things, the best way to do this. And that if we approach our gardens reverently and quietly and prayerfully, that by his grace he will reveal those things to us over time. But I have just one, one you know, uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about soil sampling, but when, we have to remember when we're sending a sample to, to, to the lab, uh, we're, we're collecting about a pound of soil for that sample, about, as, as, about the volume of my fist. Now, in an acre of land, there's four million of those pounds. Okay? So if we, uh, you know, if we consider how small a portion we're actually submitting for that analysis, and r realistically, when that sample gets to the lab... They dry it out, they grind it up, and they only use in a, using a small portion of that pound for what actually gets run through uh, the flame spectrometer that gives them the readings to tell you how many parts per million are there. So the information that we get is only as good as the sample that we provide. And that's an important understanding to have because what we're getting is a general picture of what's there, but it's not a, a specific analysis of our entire field. And there will be variations. I've, uh, you can take the same sample, divide it in half, and send them to the laboratory, and you'll come back with slightly different results from both samples for that reason. Okay? So the sample is to be used as a guideline. It's not an absolute. It's a guideline. Now, some of you may be 
you know, maybe novice gardeners and maybe wanting, some of you are probably looking for properties to farm, or if you do have property, you wonder, I had a gentleman asking me earlier today whether he should use the land that he had, and he had some concerns about some potential contamination or use another piece of land. Um, uh, I, I, I want to just point out a few things here that are important criteria, if you have the choice to make, uh, if you make them with these criteria in mind, you'll be a lot better off. One of them is that our gardens have to be in full sun. And when I ask people what full sun means, I often get a variety of different answers. Full sun means that you have as much sunlight as the geography will allow you to have for the longest period of time during the day. That means essentially from sunrise to sunset, that area where your garden is, is fully exposed to sunlight, okay? This varies depending on your situation. In West Virginia, where I live, it's very hard to find a field that has full sun. In fact, even the fields that I have are, 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 are somewhat shaded late in the afternoon. Long before the sun goes down over, over the Earth's horizon, I've got a hill that provides shade in my field. Some of the places, you know, there's uh, there's gardeners in West Virginia that deal with sunrise at 10 a.m. and sunset at 3 p.m. And in those situations, it's very difficult to grow good quality food because the sun is the energy source that drives the whole process. So obviously you want full sun. If that means cutting down some trees and, and opening up your space a little bit, then you, know, you decide whether you, the shade from the tree is more valuable to you than the food. But if you want to grow food, you need full sun. A southern exposure or a southern slope is also an advantage, especially the farther north that you go. In the winter months particularly, this becomes very, very helpful. And any of you that live in snow country know that when you look at the, at the landscape out there, the snow on the south-facing slopes melts a lot faster than the snow on the north-facing slopes. And that's because we need to think of the, of the soil as a giant soil co uh, collector, or a giant, giant solar collector. Basically, we're collecting solar energy. And that's what our plants do, too. They collect that solar energy. So a slope facing south, at, we, we live at about 38 degrees north, uh, north latitude, and a three-degree slope on the properties where we live is like moving 300 miles farther south. It's that, that has that much of an impact, simply because instead of the sun coming in at an angle like this, your, your solar collector is positioned position to collect more sunlight. So a, south, a, a slight south-facing slope is, is very helpful and provides more energy for your plants. Drainage and irrigation are also very important considerations. We often think about the irrigation part, but we very infrequently think about how critically important drainage is. It's important to realize, as we saw this morning, that plants need as much air in the root zone as they do water. If that air is not there, or if it's not exchanged frequently, your plants will not thrive. And for that reason, we need good drainage. Now, how does drainage help with air in the soil? And how can our irrigation practices influence air in the soil? Well, here's how. When we saturate the soil with either rainfall or irrigation, that water is going to move through the soil if it's a porous soil. And if there's not a restrictive feature underneath it, 
that causes it to puddle. If it puddles and stands, that's not a soil that's, that's a good candidate for agriculture. If the water moves through, what happens is as gravity pulls the water through that soil, it creates a vacuum behind the water that pulls in fresh air. So when we irrigate, we're actually aerating our soil simultaneously. Okay? Many of you that are gardeners have probably noticed that after a really heavy rainfall, your, your garden just seems to flush and, and flourish for, for a brief time. And it's because of that effect of pulling an entirely new charge of fresh air into the soil, as well as some other considerations. But it's dominantly that fresh air that gets into the root zone that has that effect on the plants. And we can do this too with our irrigation practices. You know, in many parts of the, of the, the dry west where, where I come from, uh, drip irrigation is a common method for irrigating. And although drip irrigation is suitable, and there are some advantages to it in terms of putting a small amount of water right where it needs to be, and you can put your nutrients right where they need to be, your plants are never going to flourish under a circumstance like that as they would if you had a full saturation of the soil. I'm not saying don't use drip irrigation, but if, if you use it, know why you're using it and realize that it's, you know, it's, 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 it's not the best case scenario for, for growing your crops. <clears throat> so drainage is, is, is really important. And again, a source of irrigation water is very important. And in fact, for most uh, market scale farms, people dramatically underestimate how much water is required. You know, a, 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 an inch of rain saturates the soil six inches deep on average. Different soil types, you're going to get a little different variation on that. Um, most of the crops that we grow for food uh, require about an inch of water a week. An inch of water a week. Now that inch is one-twelfth of an acre foot, and an acre foot of water is 325,000 gallons, more than 325,000 gallons of water. And the reality is that a garden that is 100 feet by 100 feet can need up to uh, 6,000 gallons of water per week. Okay, that's a lot of water. And if you've got a well, you know, when we talk about domestic wells, you know, a half a gallon a minute is plenty to operate your house on. But if you're looking at, 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 at really doing agriculture and doing it well, that's what's needed. In this part of the country, we get a large amount of that water just through natural rainfall. But if you're in the desert southwest or out on the west coast someplace where there's a Mediterranean climate and you don't get rain from March until November, uh, you need to consider that you've got an adequate water source to meet that demand. And even where we are, we get uh, about 48 inches of, of, of water a year, uh, and it comes fairly regularly on a monthly basis. You know, it averages about four inches a month, but there are still periods of time when I've got to be able to irrigate those crops, especially shortly after transplanting and when they don't have their root systems fully developed. And when we irrigate and I have to run water, I use a lot of water. So, uh, you know, keep, keep in mind that, that you need a good source of, of, of water for irrigation. Another consideration for your gardens is, is, is having them accessible. Uh, you know, think about not just when you're planting your garden, the prettiest place to put it or the best and sunniest place to put it, but how are you going to transport all of your products and, you know, in and out of the garden when you start harvesting 
you know, lots of, of, of broccoli, how's that, how, how are you going to get that out of the garden? Can you do it with a wheelbarrow, or are you going to need to get a truck in and out of there? Think about these things ahead of time. <clears throat> security is an important facet, too, especially where we are. And uh, security is becoming a more important facet as people become uh, more and more aggressive about urban gardening. Uh, you know, we have four-legged pests in our area. Uh, the deer are, are our biggest challenge. And before we even planted our garden uh, or planted any of our fields, we put up a fence to keep the deer out. And that's kind of an ongoing battle from, you know, at, at, at times. And, and folks dealing with the, with the wildlife that's in their environments, you know, more uh, urban settings have, have two-legged pests that are, that are real problems. There's a lot of uh, effort and energy being expended in community gardens these days, and I've talked to many, many people that have become very discouraged because they've worked very hard in their community gardens, and it's someone else in the community that's, that's reaping the benefits. So consider, you know, the security as attributes of your, your area, too. If you're looking for your land or evaluating your land for a purpose, whether that purpose might be vegetable gardening, raised bed agriculture, field culture of, of small grains, or orchard plantings, or small fruit plantings, you need to know uh, uh, some things about your soil that you probably aren't going to be able to observe just looking at the surface, and just knowing what the surface profile is like. And that's where this next uh, 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 point, point number six comes into play. Uh, this is uh, a website that is essentially a soil map of the entire United States. This soil map was initiated back in the 1930s after the Dust Bowl when it became apparent that we didn't know enough about our soils to protect them well, uh, that uh, this survey was initiated at that time and it wasn't completed until the 1970s. But at this point, we actually have a soil map of every piece of farmable land and most pieces of unfarmable land in the entire United States. And this soil survey can really be useful to us because it can answer a lot of questions about the soil type that we have, about the depth to a restrictive feature, about the characteristics of the soil, how permeable it is to water. If it's soil in an agricultural area, it'll have a comparison of our soil type to other soil types in the area as far as its potential to produce crops, and it can be a really useful tool. Uh, this, is, this is our farm, in, or a portion of our farm in West Virginia, uh, looking right over the top of the school buildings, and each of those red lines uh, delineates a very, very different type of soil. And the one that I want to point out here, we actually have a river that flows right through here. And this is our, our largest uh, field. This is actually just our hay field. We, we harvest hay here for the horses. My gardens are back over here. We have greenhouses in this area here. And uh, that's our, our primary production areas. Um, but the uh, point I want to make here is looking across this field, we've got actually three different soil types in this field. And if you stand here, this is a walnut tree. If you stand here and you look across that field, you'd never know that there was a difference there. But the difference actually between this soil and this soil is pretty significant in terms of where the clay is below the surface and how well the soil drains. Because we had uh, contemplated at one time planting an orchard in that area and we decided against doing that because this is the higher ground. This area floods a little bit because it's down along the river. But this higher ground here has a clay barrier under it that's about three feet deep. 
And if we tried to plant tree crops there, we'd, we'd have some issues with, with not enough drainage. So this web soil survey is really a neat tool, and it can be really helpful to you in determining the, the textural class of your soil, whether it's sand, silt, and clay, and how much. Uh, how deep the topsoil is, the A horizon is considered uh, the topsoil. That's where most of the organic matter occurs in the soil, and that can be anywhere from a few inches to, to many feet deep. Uh, and it can also tell you the depth to a restrictive feature, whether it's a sandstone layer here in the east or, or you know, a, a, a compacted clay layer or bedrock, as is in the case in some circumstances in West Virginia. It tells you where the water table is, how deep it is to where the, the soil is totally saturated, and it gives you, as I said, comparisons of, of the productivity of soil. So this is really a pretty neat tool, and those of you that haven't used it, uh, uh, I, I strongly encourage you to take a look at that. And as, if you're looking for property particularly, this can be a very helpful tool. How do they come up with that? Beg your pardon? How do they come up with that? Uh, there's, there's a lot of different methods that they use. They did some seismology in some areas. Some of it was done actually with the space shuttle, with radiography from the space shuttle. Uh, a lot of it was just boots on the ground and, and probes. And, 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 it took decades. This, it, took, it took over 40 years to complete this. Yeah. yeah. And it's remarkably accurate. It's, 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 I've never really encountered a situation where I found uh, uh, this soil survey grossly inaccurate. Yes? So I know that now that my restrictive feature is maybe three feet, how do I know what is the appropriate amount of depth for restrictive? It depends on what you're going to be growing. If you're growing uh, small vegetables that are, that are primarily going to be in that top foot of soil, then you don't have a problem. But fruit trees, how but, far down do they go? Well, fruit trees, it depends on the type of fruit tree. A nut tree, uh, you know, black walnut trees have roots that, that, that penetrate down to 30 feet. So it, it really depends on, on, on the crop that you want to grow. Uh, even, you know, one of the other things that I'm going to be talking about here in a little while is alfalfa. Uh, because alfalfa is really a miracle crop, and we should all be using it in our gardens, not necessarily just to eat, but as a method of feeding our crops. Alfalfa has a very deep root system, and that was the other consideration we had for that area on our, on our hayfield was to put our alfalfa crop there, and we decided against that because it, was, it, it, it would not have allowed the roots on the alfalfa to, to penetrate as far as we would have liked. <clears throat> Anyway, this is a, a, a way of giving you a, a much better picture of, of what you're working with than just the surface of the soil. You know, I tell folks uh, it's really important to, uh, uh, when you're out with the realtor, uh, you better have a shovel in your car if you're interested in doing agriculture at all because you don't want to deal just with what's on the surface of the soil. You want to see what's down there a little ways. And frankly, my... Uh, opinion is that you should never buy a farm until you evaluate the, the characteristics of the soil on that farm and look to see what you're dealing with, not just on the surface, but well below the surface too. Now, in some instances, the weed spectrum, the, the, the different families and classes of weeds that are on the soil can give you an indication of some of that, but the best way to do it is really to stick that shovel in the ground and, and see what you've got to work with. Um, that, that's an important facet. You know, when Ellen White was evaluating the land that became Madison, uh, you know, she had divine inspiration. And perhaps some of us also 
will be enlightened by the Lord at the right place and in the right time if we approach it prayerfully. Uh, but, uh, you know, if, if, if we're a little, uh, uh, you know, less confident than she was or less faithful than she was, perhaps we need to carry that shovel with us. And I think it's wise always to look at the subsoil and what's below uh, what the surface is in order to evaluate a piece of property correctly. All right. You having, are you hearing me okay back there? I, I'm sorry. I'm trying to speak up, but I know there's a lot of <laughs> sound back there. I apologize for that. That'll improve when they, when they get things tidied up back there a little bit. All right, we looked at this map this morning. This is, the, the color's a little better in it now than it was when we, uh, when we looked at it this morning. But I want to emphasize again that no two soils are the same. And this is really important to understand, and especially on a regional basis. We have vastly different soils on the face of the earth. And none of these soils, as I said earlier today, is perfect anymore. All of them have problems. All of them have been depleted. But the ones that are in the worst condition are actually in this part of the U.S. Okay, right, right where we're living here and up through Virginia and where I live in West Virginia. <clears throat> and, you know, I was curious about this one time. A lot of people have asked me over the years, um, especially when we were looking for the land uh, where we eventually bought our farm, um, is, you know, Bob, where would you, where would you buy land? Because they wanted to know, from my perspective as an agriculturist, where the best place to be for farming would be. And I answered that question, I'd said, out west somewhere, somewhere west of the Rocky Mountains. And uh, that's because of the experience that I have and knowing the mineral compositions of the soils out there. And after I made that response a few times, as you know, I'm, I'm settled over here, <laughs> In, instead of out there, because that's where the Lord led me. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, because I understand the concepts of how to, how to manage the soils, the, the soils that we have even in this poor area now, I, I would compare to anything that I, I grew in the Salinas Valley of California or in the Willamette Valley or, or the, uh, uh, you know, the upper Sacramento Valley where we have excellent soils. But I was curious about this myself, and I had an opportunity to talk to, to Dr. Robert Gentry once uh, about this, and uh, you know, he pointed out to me that the soils of the West are primarily uh, granitic soils. They're decomposed granite, and they're also volcanic soils. You know, we had a ring of volcanoes all the way up and down the Pacific coast here, and uh, that brought a lot of, of, of minerals to the surface that were deep down in the soil. Our part of the country over here, especially in the southeast, was where everything kind of settled out after the great Vitamix shaking of the Great Flood. So they're sedimentary soils, they're washed out, they're completely different than the antediluvian soils. And you know what we're working with here is really a, 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 a nothing at all like uh, what the, the original material of the earth was prior to the flood. So we've got some serious challenges here to, to, to overcome if we're really going to, uh, uh, to grow things in, in the way that we need to grow them. Now, I'm not trying to discourage any of you that might be thinking of, of, of you know, settling in this area because we do have the science to improve that now, as I said. Uh, but um, one of the, the interesting things about having people from all over the country come to our agriculture training programs is I had a gentleman, uh, a physician actually, from... Uh, uh, from just north of Las Vegas, 
in this part of the country over here. And, you know, most of you, I think, have seen photographs of the Nevada desert, and it's a pretty dismal-looking environment out there. But his basic soil analysis, before he did anything, and the array of minerals that he had in that soil was almost ideal. His problem was simply water. He didn't have enough water to really make it useful. But from a chemical basis, a chemical balance basis, that's the best soil that I've seen anywhere. It's better than the soil that I'm farming right now myself. So, you know, this is an illustration to me, too, that, you know, when we're faithful in following the Lord's directive that we all participate in, in, in agriculture, he's going to provide a way for us to, uh, you know, to, to meet the needs that we have regardless of where we are. And all of these principles that I've been sharing with you today and what I'm going to share with you this afternoon, as I said, are scientifically valid. That means they work most of the time, some of the time, all the time, all of the time. If it isn't something that works 100% of the time, it is not a scientific method, all right? So um, that being said, we'll do some quick review here, and then we'll get into some, uh, some, some more detailed information. <clears throat> Again, soil is minerals, about 50%. Those we can't do much about. We can, we can make some additions to the soil, uh, if those minerals are minerals that are in excessive abundance, there's not a lot we can do about it. And as we come to understand when we look at our soil analysis and our nutrition levels, we have to think of our plants utilizing that mineral balance as a buffet. You know, we all ate lunch here a little while ago, right? And I was, I was early in line. My wife and I went through uh, fairly early in line, and there was a lot more food out there than I could ever eat. But I didn't have to eat all of it, did I? I can, I, I can choose. And, and based on what my, my, my particular body needs, I, you know, I can select a little of this and a little of that and put together a meal for myself. I don't have to eat it all. And the same thing is true in the mineral abundance in our soils. You know, well, oftentimes when I give the, uh, the numbers here that I want to see, uh, people will see that numbers for things like iron are maybe much, much higher than, than what my recommendations are. And the point I'm making is that we have to realize that we have a level of sufficiency of these minerals that we need in the soil. But if there's an abundance, that's not necessarily a problem. In two cases, it can be, and I'll define those. And that does not happen often in nature. <clears throat> the microbiology in our soil is also a reason why we fertilize our soil. Please understand this. Most of us think in terms of fertilizing that we're fertilizing just our plants. And the reaction that we expect and the response that we expect should be just for our plants. If you're thinking that way, you're missing a great blessing. Because if we fertilize in order to cooperate with the biology in the soil and feed that biology too, we'll have a much, much better result in the long run. Our crops will taste better. They'll have better nutrition. They'll last longer. They'll hold up better. They'll store longer. All kinds of wonderful characteristics. And they'll be more nutritious. So what we're going to talk about today is not just feeding the plants, but feeding those too. And just very, I'm going to skip through these because we kind of covered this before this morning. 
but I do want to give us a definition of organic because I want to talk today both about the organic methods for nourishing our crops and some synthetic methods for nourishing our crops and maybe dispel a few of the myths that are out there uh, generated by the camps on both sides of this issue. Uh, in chemistry, the term organic means any molecule that contains a carbon atom. We probably remember this from high school chemistry class, but that's technically what the term organic means. In agriculture, we're, using a, 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 we're putting a different spin on that term organic, and what we're implying is anything that is living or was living. So when we're discussing organic matter in our soils, that's what we're talking about, and that consists of a lot of different things. That includes plants, plant roots, all the insects and arthropods that are living in the soil, bacteria, fungi, and algae, uh, the detritus, which is basically the stuff that is composting and converting into humus in our soils, decomposing bodies of all those other things, and also animal wastes and animal byproducts. The common constituents in all of these are the sugars, starches, proteins, cellulose, lignans, fats, and waxes. Those are the compounds that all of these things have in common. Now, when we're concerned with dealing uh, with our gardens in only an organic fashion, I want to point out that one of the challenges that I have with the, with the National Organic Program, I am not certified organic, and I never will be certified organic because I frankly disagree with some of the organic standards. I think they're unsafe. And part of the reason that I say that is because in organic agriculture there is widespread use of animal wastes and animal byproducts, things like bone meal and feather meal and blood meal. And it's perfectly legal to use porcine blood meal on your organic crops, and that's not something I'm going to accept. And not only is you know, the, the issue of using animal products uh, a concern for me because of disease, but also if you start gardening on any scale at all, and as I said earlier, we, we garden intensively on about two acres, I need, I need hundreds of tons of that stuff a year to meet the demand for my crops. And if I'm going to find hundreds of tons a year, I'm not going to find it in my own barn behind my own horses or behind my own uh, goats. I'm going to have to go to some commercial source for those materials, like a poultry feeding house, an egg facility, a cattle feed lot, or some other commercial <laughs> enterprise. And this is what the large-scale organic growers do. And I don't want to use those materials, not only because of the potential for disease, but also because those animals are treated with growth hormones, with antibiotics, with many other medications. And in the case of antibiotics, it's been demonstrated scientifically that manure from animals that have been fed uh, antibiotic-rich food, which most of them are, excrete that antibiotic, which remains active, and when you apply that manure to the soil, the plant takes that antibiotic up and it's present in the plant that you're growing. So for these reasons, I really have no interest in using animal wastes and animal byproducts on my crops. And unfortunately, most of us that are buying organically don't recognize that the organic food industry today, any of you noticed that, 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 that many of the larger corporations are buying out the smaller organic corporations and this is becoming very big business? Well, that's consumer driven. That's because people want the organic produce. But what they don't realize is that this organic produce industry is also 
a waste disposal mechanism for the meat industry, for the confined animal feeding operations around the country. So they work in concert with each other. And unfortunately, we think we're doing the right thing by buying organic when the reality is we could be buying something that is not at all what we think it is. And in most cases, that's the case. That's why it's important, brothers and sisters, that we you know, strap on our boots, roll up our sleeves, and start taking some responsibility for our food production ourselves. It's critically important. I don't see this as an option anymore for any of us. In fact, when you folks go home and you talk to your church families, if you don't have a church garden going right now with your home, uh, with your home church, it's time to start one. Because not everybody has, you know, has the living situation where they can have a garden right now, but we need to address this problem, folks. If it's not, we're going to be sitting here for a long time waiting for that second advent because we're going to get sicker and sicker and sicker. And when he starts looking for his people and you know, people that he can recognize his character in, we're going to have a struggle fitting that bill if our minds are, are, are clouded because we're not eating the right foods or we're polluted by all of the other aspects of society around us, be it information or the, the laundry detergent that we're using or the exhaust coming out of the back end of our car. We've got some work to do. And this is an important first step, because unless we do this, unless we address what we're putting into our bodies and nourishing ourselves with, the rest of it's really kind of a moot point. Our health message is a moot point if we don't have healthy foods to go with the recommendations, you know. Uh, uh, just a, a, a quick uh, anecdote here. I had a, a very dear friend that uh, was at, at Uchi Pines for a while. She had some digestive issues, and she was prescribed, uh, you know, uh, taking some fresh-squeezed grape juice on a daily basis, about four ounces. It wasn't any large amount. But, you know, they specified at Uchi Pines that she should use organic grape juice. And, uh, you know, so she was buying organic grapes at the market and, you know, making her own juice. And she did well for a while until she got into the winter months and she had to start buying grapes from Chile, from Latin America, because, uh, you know, American-grown grapes weren't, were no longer available. And overseas, I don't have anywhere near the confidence in that organic label that I do uh, for, for things that are grown here in the U.S. And uh, sure enough, as she started using those foreign-grown gra grapes, she started getting sicker and sicker. And she came to me and she asked me about it. She said, Bob, you know, I'm buying these organic grapes, but I'm just not feeling right. Now, I know a few things about the grape industry because that's part of what my background was. And I shared with her some of the pesticides that are used on grapes, even organic pesticides that are used on grapes. And I said, what you're doing is you're dosing yourself with a toxic level of these pesticides because you're, you're concentrating it by juicing. So she stopped and, and, you know, she was relieved of some of those symptoms. But that's an example of why we need to do this ourselves. Because we cannot place our trust in a government agency that provides a little green and white seal that says USDA organic. That's simply not going to cut the mustard for us. We have to take some responsibility ourselves and do these things ourselves. Soil organic matter is really important in the soil because it improves the soil structure. It allows pore space for air and water penetration. It 
provides a buffering capacity to dramatic changes in the chemistry of the soil. You know, we use charcoal a lot in our health ministries, and part of the reason that we use charcoal is because it's a great buffering agent for anything that's toxic. It attracts it and ties to it and binds it and renders it less toxic. Um, it increases the cation exchange capacity of the soil over time and can increase it pretty dramatically. Uh, if you have a very coarse soil that is low in CEC, someone was asking me about stony soil earlier on, and my soil is pretty stony too. Uh, and uh, one of the ways that we can improve the characteristics of that soil is by using organic matter to raise not only uh, the, uh, the nutritional level of the soil, but to raise the soil's ability to further hold nutrition that we uh, apply in one way or another. And this provides nutrients both for plants and microbes too. And as I pointed out earlier in the periodic table of the elements, we have 114 elements in nature, and plants only require 17 of these. And these are the ones that we're going to address when we talk about how we feed our plants, because that's the science that we know. And I'm not saying that that's all there is to know. What I'm saying is that this is the science that we know is that plants require these 17 elements. The agriculture industry as a whole, whether you're talking to an organic grower or you're talking to a large commercial supplier, addresses this and leaves the rest of it to chance. And that means that there's those other 16 elements that we need that are not necessary in agriculture. Uh, that doesn't mean they're not necessary for you and I. Uh, along with those 17 elements, four elements have been identified that I call assistive elements. They're not essential elements, meaning that if the plant grows in an environment where, in an environment where these are not present, uh, the plant will still grow and can actually thrive and do quite well. But if these are pr present in the, in, in the right amounts, then they, that, then they seem to enhance plant growth. They aid and assist the plants in growing, but they're not essential elements. And then we have the other 16 elements that are required for our health. And over time, as plants grow, they mine the soil for all of these elements through their root systems. And if we're not doing something about it, then eventually we deplete the soil of these elements and we're growing nutrient-deficient food. Welcome to America. Welcome to the entire world, really, at this point in time and especially where we monocrop and we use only synthetic materials for, uh, uh, for nourishing those plants. We have very little biological activity. None of the native elements that are left in the soil are really available to the plants in that scenario, in that, in that chemical soup that, that we call commercial agriculture today. So we're dealing with, with, with lots of problems, some serious problems. Now, one of the ways that I overcome that deficiency of those 16 elements that I need for my health. And by the way, this is an area I would love to see some more research done in. To my knowledge, there is none taking place at any of our land-grant universities right now, and that's simply because there's no money in it. Growing a healthy tomato versus growing a standard commercial tomato has no monetary value to the public. There's no way for the public to distinguish between the two. So there's no financial advantage in growing healthy food today. The industry is just driven this way. 
And that holds true for, for organic produce too. There's no benefit to the grower that really takes the time to understand what I just explained about those 16 elements to address the soil with those 16 elements. There's no, I don't get any premium at the farmer's market because my tomatoes have four times the nutrition in them uh, that, that my neighbors do. We both grow organically. An organic tomato is an organic tomato. His are red, mine are red. I, I, don't, I don't derive any benefit from that. And that's part of the reason that we don't have research being done on this today. But it's critically important that we start to develop some understanding of this. One of the ways that I address it is I use this product here. It's called C90. This is basically a sea salt with at least 90 different elements in it. And C products are one of the ways, whether you use this one or some of the others that are, that are out there and on the market, can overcome that deficiency of some of those those, those tiny trace elements that, that we need. You know, a few months ago, I had the opportunity to talk with one of the research directors of Bayer Corporation, Bayer Ag Division. He was, uh, you know, he was, he was visiting a neighbor of ours, actually, uh, and he happened to be one of the chief, uh, uh, the chief researchers for Bayer Corporation. He worked in their herbicide division. And I was talking to him about our lack of understanding about these nutrients in the soil. And his response was kind of what I expected it to be. And he says, well, you know, we, the, the body needs those in so sm such small amounts, we just, we just figure they're everywhere. We just assume that they're there, is what he said. Now, this is a guy with a PhD that's working at, you know, the peak of his profession on the cutting edge of science. And that's his attitude and his perspective. So that's what we're faced with. Um, anyway, whether you use this product or, or some other material, another one is mined uh, out in the western states, a product called azomite. There are a lot of different things around that can address this issue. Uh, and as I, I, I said, um, you know, there's very little science to demonstrate exactly how much of this need, you need. And the other issue too, and Lynn Hoag has a whole presentation on sea minerals later this week if, if you want to, uh, to get more details on this. Uh, but one of the challenges of using a product like this is there's a lot of things in here that are toxic to plants too. So we've got to find the right threshold of putting enough of the material in for our, our nutritional benefit, but not, in, not putting so much in that we cause a detrimental effect uh, due to the toxicities. Yes, ma'am. My, my concern was about uh, heavy metals, like uh, <clears throat> mm -hmm. arsenic and, and uh, mercury in the, in the ocean, Arsenic actually is an essential human nutrient and a very tiny amount. But no, you have, you have a good point there. Uh, now, these sea minerals, uh, this particular product comes from the Sea of Cortez. And it's basically right where the Colorado River uh, comes into, uh, into, into the Gulf of California. And, it, you know, it's not as likely to be contaminated with industrial materials as, as, as some salts from other parts of the, of the planet. But again, we have to, have to weigh the cost-benefit here. And, you know, one of the other concerns is since this comes from the West Coast, you know, what about the radiation from Fukushima? Mm -hmm. And uh, that is something to concern ourselves with. And, and uh, you know, one of the things, again, is that we have to understand what's going on, apply science here. Most of those heavy materials that are radioactive are very, very heavy molecularly, they're heavy molecules, and they go boom right to the bottom of the ocean, which isn't to say that the ocean currents aren't going to stir them up a little bit, but, you know, we have to weigh the benefit of the nutrition that we get versus the risk that we have, 
And uh, at this point in time, I'm still confident enough in, in this product that that's the one that I make use of. Yes, sir? It can, be, it can be done a, a variety of different ways. I incorporate a little bit of it in my irrigation water. I have an injection pump that meters a, a, a small amount of this into my irrigation water. But, uh, you know, you can also apply it directly to the soil and, and till it into the soil. I think my method is a little bit better in the sense that I don't have concentrated salts. You know, even, even though that's a tiny little grain, as that diffuses, it's going gonna, it's gonna to damage the microbiology in a micro, in a micro environment there for a period of time. And by, excuse me, pre-diluting it through the, through the irrigation source, there's less of a chance of that. Um, the, uh, uh, the next point I want to make is what we're going to address here, and, and we're running out of time in this session, but we're going to cover it in the next, is, okay, all of that being said, what do we do with these numbers here? How do we nourish our soils? How do we calculate uh, what we need for plant nutrition in our soils? And again, I want to emphasize that when we're using organic sources, we're using some sources that I don't consider safe. All of these things are considered uh, perfectly suitable for the USDA organic program and certified naturally grown. Uh, frankly, I think that there are some of those that are not safe. Uh, one of the methods that I use for nitrogen fertilization in my soils is taking advantage of, <coughs> uh, of, of nitrogen that can be formed in the ground by a specific family of plants, the legume plants. Legume plants are colonized uh, by a bacteria called rhizobia, and as these rhizobia colonies grow, they can actually use atmospheric nitrogen. You know, 80% of what we're breathing right now is nitrogen. It's just in a form that plants can't use. And these bacteria take the N2 uh, from the atmosphere and convert it into proteins within the plant that break down into ammonium and eventually into nitrate that plants can take up in their root systems. So growing cover crops is my prime method, and what you see here are the nodules of the rhizobia on a root system here. And the best crops for doing this are alfalfa, clovers, and vetch. Peas and beans also have this capacity, but if we're harvesting the peas and the beans, we're stealing the protein from the plant, and we really don't get any net gain from, from growing peas and beans in terms of building the soil. Uh, if you're going to build the soil, you need to use clover, vetch, and one I'm going to show you here in a minute called sun hemp, which is really a pretty remarkable product. This is my winter cover crop of red clover, uh, along with my daughter, and my dog's as happy as a, as a, corn, as a cow in the clover here. Uh, <clears throat> but this is a nitrogen-fixing winter cover crop that I use, and I use crimson clover simply because it does very well in our a particular microclimate, uh, this fixes about 80 pounds of nitrogen per acre per year, which is about half my nitrogen requirement uh, for the year. So by sowing this in late September and allowing it to grow until early May and then turning it into the soil, I meet a lot of my soil's demand. <clears throat> this next slide is a picture of a crop called sun hemp. It's in the crotillaria species. And now, they call this hemp, but it's not in the hemp family. This is actually a legume. And this is a tropical plant that has the capacity to produce lots of biomass. As you can see, 
this was planted, uh, this was a picture from, from uh, uh, 2016, and I planted this at, uh, at, at about the second week of June and plowed it into the ground here. This is the first week of September. And it grew that much in that short a time, which added, you know, somewhere along the order of two to three tons of biomass per acre. But the real advantage to this sun hemp is that it fixes up to 140 pounds of nitrogen per acre. So what I did here was I planted this in the summer, allowed it to grow. I chopped it with my bush hog, and then I disked it in with my tractor here. And then I planted my fall crop of broccoli there. And I grew some beautiful broccoli without the need for fertilization. That was 100% of my annual nitrogen there, yes. Now, this crop is a tropical plant, so I can't use this as a winter cover crop. This is a summer cover crop. And at this point, I'll just mention quickly that it's important to realize when we organize and strategize for how much garden area that we need, we need to recognize if we're going to use cover crops as part of our crop rotation, that has to factor in. So if I need X amount of space to grow the food for myself, I need a little bit more in order to grow the, uh, you know, the cover crop. About once a year, I'll, 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 I'll rotate and either a winter cover crop or a summer cover crop uh, once a year, uh, uh, sometimes once every two years. But you grow all year. Yes. But I'm from Minnesota. Yeah. Obviously, we don't grow in the winter. Okay. Well, you grow a cover crop on part of your ground in, in, in the summer, and then you rotate. Yes. Uh -huh. Well, that's, that's on average uh, the studies that have been done on the, on the fixation uh, capacity of this plant. Do I know that I actually got 140 pounds? Not really. I can pull up the root systems and examine them for those rhizobia colonies, and depending on how many of them are there, uh, I, can, I can get a pretty good feel for it. But you can see them with the naked eye? Yes. Mm -hmm. Do you yeah, I, I do inoculate once. Um, you know, an inoculant uh, essentially is adding this bacteria to the soil when you plant these crops because if you haven't planted a legume crop for a while, uh, the populations of this specific bacteria might be pretty low. So I inoculate the first time I plant. After that, I don't inoculate again because I've got the, I've got the, the, the residual population still dormant in the soil. That is true of the other cover crops, too. So the first time I planted red clover in my rotations around the farm, I inoculated it. I haven't done it since then. So, and you know. what do you like to inoculate with? Beg your pardon? What do you like to inoculate I use Ensure, which is rhizobia. What, what I did here is where, where you see the tractor parked there, you see how the, the, the ground is all green there? I just went through with a bush hog, and I mowed all the big stuff down. So that they call it sun hemp, and the reason it gets the name hemp is that the stuff is pretty stringy. And if I tried to just disc through that big stuff, it wouldn't chop it up very well. So I chop it up first, and then I disc it, and I just work it into the soil, and then I till it, and then plant my crop. All right. Okay. We've got just a couple minutes left, but I want to, I, I uh, again, dispel some myths here. I, I, I enjoy doing this, and I'll... I'll do it a few times this week. So if you have an opportunity to hear my classes, especially on seed saving, please come to that one because I have some myths that I just love exploding. And one of them that I have that I want to explode is that synthetic plant nutrient sources are not necessarily harmful. Oh boy, what did he say? Uh, nobody's throwing 
green tomatoes at me, so I guess I'm still safe. And I want to explain some things about nutrient sources for plants before we talk about how we're going to nourish our plants. Because again, because there's such a, a, an extreme polarity between the organic camp and the conventional camp, we've lost sight of the truth, which is really somewhere in between. And the reality is that, as that quotation from J.I. Rodale pointed out, the nitrogen that is in a bag of fertilizer, folks, comes from the atmosphere. It's not a petrochemical. It's not synthesized. It's, it doesn't just magically, you know, or it, it isn't conjured from some toxic waste dump someplace. It's nitrogen from the atmosphere. It's associated with oil refining because it takes a lot of energy to take that atmospheric nitrogen and make something solid out of it. But the initial reaction is combining nothing but nitrogen and hydrogen under high temperature and high pressure and creating an ammonia molecule. And from that ammonia molecule, all of the other nitrogen sources are derived. So the nitrogen that's in a bag of, of, of nitrogen fertilizer, and I'm talking about things like urea and ammonium nitrate, calcium nitrate, that nitrogen is actually a very, very pure form of nitrogen. And it's a lot cleaner than getting the nitrogen out of the back end of a cow that's contaminated with all kinds of other stuff that we don't want. All right? The phosphorus that's used in phosphorus uh, sources in synthetic fertilizers is the same phosphate rock that many of us apply to the ground in the form of phosphate rock. It's simply reacted with either a phosphoric acid or a nitric acid in the process. And if those acids are clean, then the product is clean. And there's a way to distinguish between the two that we'll get into in our last presentation today. But my point is that the phosphorus itself comes from the same source as the rock phosphate that we use in organic agriculture. Potassium also is a mined mineral. There's nothing mysterious or, or, or synthetic about that. Most of the forms of potassium fertilizers are pretty clean products. There isn't much contamination, if any, in them, which is why things like potassium sulfate are certified for organic use. Now, why these things aren't included on the organic list, I don't know, because to me, to my mind, there's a, a whole lot of stuff on there that's a lot more dangerous, like the porcine blood meal, for example. Sulfur is a mined mineral, but you have to be cautious here because it can also be a refining or industrial byproduct. And in those cases, it can be contaminated with heavy metals, and we can, you know, we can encounter all kinds of other problems. Uh, calcium, for the most part, that we use in agriculture, whether in the, in, in the form of gypsum or in the form of limestone or in the form of uh, some of the uh, chelated calciums that are, that are out there as sprays, that's a mined mineral. Uh, the magnesium is a mined mineral, and many of the micronutrients are mined minerals also, although some of them may be derived from industrial byproducts. The problem with most of the synthetic fertilizers is that many of them have additives in them. And those additives, including things like clay, can also be heavy metal byproducts from industrial and municipal wastes. This is where the challenge comes. When you buy that bag of 10-10-10 from Walmart, you don't know what's in that bag because the EPA has actually determined that there is a benefit to taking industrial waste, incorporating it into fertilizer, and spreading it across the country because it helps to eliminate point source areas of contamination. Instead of having a really toxic waste site next to an industrial 
uh, you know, facility. We take that toxic waste and we spread it out and we dilute it enough so that the environment uh, is, is, is contaminated, but not contaminated to the point where it really causes problems. So I'm not by any means saying that all synthetic fertilizers are safe. Please understand me in saying that. And if we use even the clean sources of synthetic fertilizers improperly, we can do a lot of damage to the microbiology of the soil. And this is the primary reason why it's not accepted for use among the organic growers, because the claim is made that it harms soil microbiology. But I'm going to assert to you, and this is based on my own experience and also science, that if you use these tools properly, you can actually grow microbiology in the soil, and that's exactly what we've done at Berea Gardens. We started out with a soil that was 1.5% organic matter. Three years later, we had 4.5% organic matter in that soil without adding any organic matter. Well, how did that happen? It happened because I used the right combinations of chemistry to feed the microbes and to grow that microbiology in place. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.